You know, this is a special Sunday where we set aside for the kids. And uh, this is a, just an opportunity to hear from them, to hear and be blessed by them, really. When we hear from these kids, uh, I don't know that any of us uh, would... We don't get tired of it, you know what I mean? We could sit there and watch them sing and perform and say these verses. And for some reason, we sit perfectly still in our seats because these kids have the ability to teach us. And uh, that was just really a neat, neat morning here. So, but we do have a little study uh, today, uh, kind of a half sermonette, um, if you will. And uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, maybe for the very first time, you, you had your kid in uh, VBS and now you've, you've come today. Uh, we are actually in the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue on a little bit in our series in the book of Philippians. So if you would, you can go ahead and begin to turn there. And the title of my sermon today, uh, you're going to get a, a handout from the ushers. It's called A Matter of Life and Death. A Matter of Life and Death. And you know, when we speak of things that are a matter of life and death, that really gets people's attention. And, you know, children are especially influenced by matters of life and death. For instance, this week at VBS, uh, Miss Katie Varela, uh, she was leading songs. And she, we started out the week on Monday, and she would say, okay, I want, uh, we had 12 crews of kids. She said, I want crew one to come and lead songs today. Well, that was on Monday. And you should have seen the look on crews two through 12 the look on their faces when they didn't get picked to lead songs and to do all the hand motions and all that stuff. I mean, it was like a matter of life and death. The look on these kids' faces was like, but what about me? What about me? It's so important that I want to come up here and I want to lead the motions. So what do you think we did on Tuesday? We said, okay, whoever wants to lead motions can come on up. And we had everybody up on stage and there was nobody in the pews and all the kids up on stage because it was a matter of life and death that they got to lead these motions. Children are very sensitive to matters of life and death. I uh, heard a story one day about a boy. He had just left the church service that day and he was walking out the back. And as he was walking out, this little boy, maybe three or four years old, he got into the foyer and he looked up to the side of the wall and he saw this, this placard, this, uh, this award, so to, or this placard on the wall. And it said, uh, it said Captain John Thompson on it. And, it's, and, and he, and he, he kind of looked at it and he says, Mom, what is that name? He said, she says, Captain John Thompson. And the boy couldn't read, so he also turned to his pastor. He said, Pastor, what does that say in that placard on that wall in, in, in here? What does that say over there? And the pastor walked over and he said, Well, Johnny, he says that... That placard there says that Captain John Thompson, that he died in the service three years ago, and we honored him. And the boy paused a second and he said, well, which service, the 8.30 or the 10 o'clock? <laughs> Matters of life and death. Kids are especially interested in them. And, you know, we as adults are interested in matters of life and death. We, our ears perk up when we start thinking about matters of life and death. And as we look today in Philippians, we're going to see a story. Uh, we're going to see Paul writing about matters of life and death. In Philippians 1, starting in verse 21, where we're going to be today, the Apostle Paul is going to be writing to the Philippian Christians. It's a letter that he's writing. And he's writing to a church. And he's going to be writing to them using the language of life and death. And when you and, and you and I know this, when we use life and death, usually we're talking about something of utmost importance. And Paul, in this particular part of the Bible, is saying, hey, life and death, this is of utmost importance. Listen to what I'm saying here, because there is nothing more important than this. Let's read it together. We're going to start in Philippians 1. Verses 21 to 26. Paul says this. He says, For to me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, now that you would attune our hearts to your word. Father, this is your truth. As we look at the words of Scripture right now written by the Apostle Paul, we recognize that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Father, that you designed us to, to read these words and to understand them and to apply them to our lives. We pray that you'd help us with that task today, that we would understand what Paul means as he speaks of this matter of life and death. In Christ's name, amen. Just a little bit of a background before we dig into this scripture passage. Uh, for those of you that don't know it, the Apostle Paul, the, one, the, the author of the book of Philippians, is actually in prison at this time. He's actually most likely under house arrest. And he's been arrested because of his Christian testimony. The Jews had arrested him in Jerusalem. He was sent to Caesarea, also in Israel. And then he was shipped off to Rome. And Paul by now has probably been in prison anywhere from two to four years. And so he's, he's been in prison a while on false charges. On charges that he, he is quite confident he will be acquitted of. And yet he's taking the opportunity in the midst of a difficult circumstance in his life, in the midst of being chained and on house arrest, he's taking full advantage of his opportunity to speak about matters of life and matters of death. So let's dig into this together. Let's pick it apart. Let's see what we can learn from this passage today. Notice verse 21. Paul says this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if you notice the words in yellow, uh, the to be verb is, right? Both of those. Here's the interesting thing. In the original language, in the original Greek, the verb isn't there. In fact, it actually says to live, Christ, to die, gain. And the reason why Paul's saying this, to live, Christ, and to die, gain, is because he wants to make this a very poignant sentence. He wants this sentence to be memorable. He wants this sentence to resonate in your hearts and in my hearts. And so he doesn't use a verb. He just says it as it is here. To live, Christ. To die, gain. What does it mean to live Christ? Well, it means this. Paul, when he says to live Christ, means to be in association with Christ. Or to be in relationship to Christ. In effect, Paul's saying, if you're going to live in this life, your life needs to be summed up entirely in Christ. And I have a quote here from uh, someone I quoted last week, as a matter of fact, and his commentary on the Philippians has just really been intriguing me and giving me a lot of fresh perspective. So let's take a look at this quote here by Gerald Hawthorne. Look what he says about to live Christ. He says this. He says, life is filled up with, occupied with, Christ, in the sense that everything Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. I think that's really well said. For Paul, if he was to keep on living... He's in prison, and he's expecting release, but he's saying this to the Philippians. He's taking the occasion to say this. If he is to keep on living, it is to be with and for Jesus Christ. Paul has already made it explicitly clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day, that through believing in him, that if we believe in him, we will have everlasting life. For Paul, that gospel message took preeminence in all facets of his human existence. It was his utmost concern. For Paul, it was to be truly 
human. Let me say that again. For Paul, it was to be truly human. You know, we often talk about living life to the fullest, living life to the extreme, and oftentimes we think that means doing whatever we want. And in fact, in our world today, when I say I'm going to live life to the fullest, usually what you're thinking in your brain when I say that statement is, oh, he's going to Vegas tomorrow. Right? I'm going to live life to the fullest. Oh, he must be, you know, he's going to booze it up tomorrow or on the weekend. or He's going to a great party. No. Paul says to live life to the fullest, to be truly human, to have a truly human existence is actually to live for Christ. To live Christ. That is the truly fullest human experience. To live Christ. On the other hand, to die, gain. To die, gain. Uh, The interesting thing about this statement, to die, gain, is Paul has actually probably adapted this statement. Because in classical Greek, there are a number of uh, Greek poets who have actually made a statement that is very similar to this. To die is gain. To die is gain. But interestingly, in ancient Greek, when they said to die is gain, they meant that, oh, Get rid of the shackles of life, the toils and the hardships. Throw it all off and let's just go to the afterlife because let's leave this miserable life behind us. Anything but this life behind us must be better. That was their conception. But see, Paul, he uses their statements here. He uses the the poems of the Greeks and of the ancient Greek poets and he says, no, 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 you got it wrong. Yes, to die is gain, but there's more to it than that. It's not just leaving this pitiful existence, Paul says. It's not just throwing off the hardship and the toils and the trials of life. For Paul, to die as gain meant so much more than this. It meant that a person who was a believer in Jesus Christ, upon death, would immediately become a part of the pre- in, in, be, be in the presence of God. That upon their death, they would go directly to be with Jesus Christ. And Paul sums this up in a passage that's in 2 Corinthians. I wanted to read this. I, uh, I, I took out a couple of verses just to, to, for brevity's sake, but take a look at this and notice what Paul is saying about death in this passage. He says this, For we know that if our earthly house, that means our body, if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this, in this body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Now He, God, who has prepared us for this very thing, is God. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, notice this, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. See, Paul up here in 2 Corinthians is saying, hey, I know that my death will be gain. Why? Because number one, I believe in Jesus Christ. And number two, when you look at verse 10 there and you see about the judgment seat of Christ, Paul was confident that he had lived a life that was worthy of Jesus Christ. That was worthy of commendation and honor from Jesus Christ. And so Paul was confident that when that day came, when he died, he would go before Jesus and later on at the judgment seat of Christ, or what's known as the Bema seat in Greek, before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, Paul was confident that he would be rewarded, that he would experience gain from what he had done here in this life. But that's not all. Paul is not just going to look forward now to death and say, death is gain, I'm going to die. I'm looking forward to death. I'm looking forward to being released from the shackles of this life. No, Paul is actually going to express great perplexity here. Look what he says in verse 22. Paul is about to 
We're about to enter into Paul's conscience, conscience here. And we're about to see Paul's dilemma. We're about to see the toil that he has between these two decisions. Take a look at verse 22. He says this, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul Someone asked rhetorically, he states rhetorically, if, I, if my life is to continue, to what end? What would be its value? If, if dying is gain, why should I go on living? That's his first statement there. What would be the purpose? And Paul quickly answers his statement. He says, fruit, fruit from my labor. Fruit from my labor. This idea of fruit here has the has the expectation that Paul is going to reap good things out of the work of the ministry that he has attended himself to. That Paul is anticipating that good things will come out of his presence continuing in this earth. And we've already seen Paul do amazing things throughout the Scriptures. If you read prior to this, read through the book of Acts, look what Paul did. All of the book of Acts is prior to his arrest, except for the very last few chapters. You can see all the, the fruit in Paul's life. But what, was, what specifically would Paul experience later on if he was to live? Let me suggest this. Number one, the gospel would spread further. And that was Paul's utmost concern. If you read earlier in this chapter, that the gospel would go forth. Two, more converts to Jesus Christ. More fruit. Three, perhaps Paul would receive even more recognition and honor at the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus Christ. Paul perhaps anticipated living on so that he could bear more fruit and so that Jesus Christ would be more well-pleased in him. And fourth, uh, some scholars argue that First and Second Timothy and Titus was written because Paul got released from Rome. So you and I got to read three more books of the Bible before Paul, uh, before Paul was, uh, was, was killed for his faith. And so there was all this fruit that Paul anticipated doing, not the least of which is writing more of the New Testament. Paul's saying, I know that there is more to my life. I know that there is more fruit for me to be had. But then look what he says. He says, uh, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. Yet what I shall choose between these two options I cannot tell. This idea of tell here actually has the idea of to make known or to reveal Paul, in essence, is not saying that he does not want to tell, but rather that he dare not make the choice. Paul is saying, I dare not choose between these two options. I dare not leave it up to me to decide what should become of me. Paul, in essence, is saying here that he wants someone else to make the decision. And it's very clear that he wants the Lord to make the decision for him. He's saying, I dare not choose. I dare not tell what I would prefer between death and life. He has this tension. And he is content to live with this tension. Something that you and I should consider in our own lives. Do we have this tension of wanting to be with Christ and at the same time wanting to continue on and be fruitful? Paul is hard-pressed. Look at the word hard-pressed there. That has the idea of strain, tension. Actually has the idea of being imprisoned. Ironically enough, Paul is imprisoned. He's saying, I am hard-pressed. I am imprisoned by these two desires. On the one hand, to live. On the other hand, to die and be with Christ. But you know what? As compelling, as compelling as Paul's desires are, and as compelling as his, this tension is, he recognizes very quickly in the very next verse that there's other factors involved. And Paul says this about the church at Philippi, to whom he's writing. Look what he says about them. He says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, to remain in this life, is more needful for you. Paul recognizes that though he desires to leave the cares of this world behind, he has a multitude of people counting on him north of the Mediterranean Sea. The word needful has the idea of being necessary, being critical. He's saying it's absolutely crucial here that I continue and minister to you. 
because you have need of me. And I was thinking about this uh, in relationship to my, my grandmother, as a matter of fact. My grandmother, uh, Ellen Anderson, is 90 years old. She just turned 90 this last year. And she is a wonderful Christian lady. But I'll tell you, there are times where she's told me, Neil, I don't know why the Lord has me living any longer. I don't know why He has me living any longer. Because I'm just sitting here in my, in my uh, mobile home and I watch a couple television shows and I try to be you know, a good representative of Jesus Christ, but I just feel like I'm not doing all that much. And yet, my grandmother usually answers her own question a little bit later on in the conversation because she inevitably ends up telling me about one of her neighbors who she's been working on for many, many years trying to lead to the Lord. Inevitably, that happens with her. She says, I don't know why I'm here. And then later on, two minutes later, she says, oh yeah, I was witnessing to Melba the other day and so and so on. And I'm thinking, well, Grandma, you're answering your own question. There are times when you're here and there's no other purpose that you're here except for other people, except for others. You know, Mary Ann Fisher, uh, a wonderful lady in our church, does uh, some senior visitation. And she goes out and visits the homebound. And Mary Ann went to Laura Ireland's house, uh, one of our longtime members who is 94, tur- turning 94 this year. And she went over to Laura Ireland's house just this last week. And at 94, she asked her, how you doing, Laura? And Laura said, I'm doing great. Laura said, my caregiver, I led my caregiver to the Lord the other day. 94 years old and led her 24-hour-a-day caregiver to the Lord. Marianne rejoiced with her in that and said, well, what, what can we as a church do to pray for you? She said this. She said, pray that I can continue, that the Lord will continue to use me as a witness and a comfort to those around me. 94. Paul here is saying, hey, sometimes the only reason for you and I to go on is others. is so that others might hear the message of Jesus Christ and that they might be saved. When you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling down about your life, you feel like you have no purpose, maybe you've lost a job or you're going through a tough family time or you have an illness, whatever the case may be, oftentimes the Lord still has you around because He wants you to impact the life of another person. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So which option does Paul prefer? Life or death? On account of the need of the people who are receiving his Spirit-inspired letter of instruction and hope, Paul expresses confidence that he's going to continue in this life. And look what he says in verse 25. He says this, And being confident of this, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Being confident of this. He says that same wording in verse 6. A little bit earlier if you want to compare the two phrases. He is confident that this is going to occur. What is he confident of? That he will remain and continue. Remain and continue with the Philippians. And why? For their progress and joy of faith. And that word progress there, interesting word. He uses that word in verse 12. And you know what he says about it in verse 12? He says, my life exists for the progress of the gospel. In verse 12. My life exists for the progress of the gospel. And then what does he say here again in verse 25? He says, hey, I'm coming to you for your progress of faith. To see your progress. To see your development. To see your maturity. That's why I'm going to continue to live. Paul desires to stay. To witness and assist in the Philippians' participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to watch their faith develop. And he wants to experience the joy that flows from their personal and spiritual growth. And I liken this quite a bit to like a father who's watching his son compete in a sporting event. I know that I'm about to have a son in about six more weeks. And uh, Casey's getting him ready for baseball already. She's been playing catch with him in the womb. and uh, Or just patting her womb, rather. And, um, and I know... Because even when I watch some of the kids in this church, I know I can see the look on the father's faces when they're sitting there and they're watching their kid sing a song or they're watching their kid hit the baseball or shoot the hoops, as Scott would like to say. Whatever the case may be, when a father is watching his son perform, perform, 
he is inevitably proud. Inevitably proud. And the Apostle Paul is a father to the Philippians. He is like a father to them. And he's saying, I want to come back. And I want to watch your faith perform. I want to watch your faith perform. I want to see what Jesus Christ is going to do through you. That is Paul's hope. It should come as no surprise then that the, that they will, the Philippians and Paul together will experience this sense of pride. Look at verse 26. He says, Why will I do this? That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. That word rejoicing actually has the idea of pride in it. It's more of a boasting or more of a, a welling up with pride. And Paul is saying here that, hey, if, if we are going to share this, this mutual proud moment of being reunited after my imprisonment, I, what I want to do with that moment is I want to deflect it. And I want to deflect it onto the person of Jesus Christ. I want to take the pride that you have in me and I have in you and I want to deflect it back more abundantly to Jesus Christ. What does the father do when he sees his son performing well? He just thanks the Lord for giving him that son. What, is the, what, do the, what does Paul do when he sees the Philippians performing well? He says, hey, great job. Now let's together praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Deflecting their pride back to Jesus Christ. Deflecting his pride back to Jesus Christ. What can we learn from this? What can we learn from this uh, little look into Philippians 1? Well, a few things. Uh, a couple things here for the, for the believers in this room, and then the final is for the unbeliever. Uh, the first application is this. I want you to recognize that a healthy Christian, and Paul here is expressing that this is normal for him to feel this way. A healthy Christian is one who experiences tension between wanting to depart and to be with Christ and also wanting to remain and be a good ambassador of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should have this tension. We really should. If we are too much on one side of the fence, we should try and balance it out. If we are thinking in this life, oh, you know what, all I want to do is just get to heaven, get me out of this life, we should tip the scales back and say, wait a minute, I'm here for a reason. Jesus has me here for one reason or another, and chances are it might be that neighbor who you need to witness to. And at the same time, if you're just relishing this life and, and you're not even considering about the life thereafter, maybe you should look into the Word of God and recognize that we are to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. There should be this tension. We are not citizens of this world, and yet we are in this world. And so we need to do something about it. Recognize that tension within you. Secondly, participate with others in developing and maturing our faith in Jesus Christ. Participate with others. Recognize that you have a role here. Paul is saying they needed me. I can guarantee you that if you're here in the pews today and still living today, there's a need. There's some need out there that you need to fulfill. And finally, for the unbeliever in this room, I want to just stress as clearly as I can make it that when we talk about believing in Jesus Christ, this is a matter of life and death. What we believe about Jesus is a matter of life and death. And if you have questions about what it means to believe in Christ, I encourage you to talk to me after the service. You can talk to an elder. Uh, we, we, there are so many here who would love to talk to you about what it means to be a child of God and to have eternal life through faith in Christ. I want to close with a story here. My father-in-law had a quintuple bypass surgery in, uh, three weeks ago, and he's here today. It's pretty amazing. And, uh, and Bob, his mother, actually had a heart attack when she was in her 70s. And her name was Audrey, and she was a believer. And she had this heart attack. She lived up in the Lake Arrowhead area. And she, went to, she, she survived the heart attack and went to a doctor. She met a, a young Jewish doctor. He's about 35 years old in the Lake Arrowhead area. And he examined her, gave her, gave some tests, and he said, well, we need to operate right away. He said, you've had a, a terrible heart attack, and you, if we don't operate with a bypass surgery, he says, you're just not going to make it. 
Well, Audrey went home that day. She did not make the decision on that day. And she went home and she called her son, Bob, my father-in-law, and she began to express her feelings of helplessness. And she was pretty broken up about the prospect of of dying, uh, of of possibly dying. And Bob encouraged his mother. He, He reminded her that she was a child of God, that she did not have to fear death, that in fact death for her would be gain. And he also prayed for healing and for comfort. And immediately, uh, Audrey had told him later on that she felt radically better as a result of speaking with her son and as a result of his prayer. She returned to the doctor's office the next day, and the Jewish doctor again told her, he said, you know, again, I, I can't reiterate this any more clearly. If you do not go through with this surgery, you're probably going to die within a very short while. And Audrey said, you know what? I'm not afraid to die. I am not afraid to die. She said, I'm a Christian. My son reminded me that I don't need to fear death, that death for me is going to be gain. And besides, he prayed for me last night, and I'm feeling 100% better. The doctor kind of taken aback, looked at her, and recognized that right away she was, her mind was made up, that she was not afraid to die, And that at this point in her life, she said, with her older age, she was at the point where she did not want to go through with the surgery. And she had felt 100% better, she said. She said, I'm going home. And he pleaded with her and said, I really think you're making a horrible mistake here, ma'am. But she said, nonetheless, I'm not afraid to die. I'm going home. Before she left, he did persuade her to take a few more tests. Audrey went home that night. The very next morning, she got a call from from the doctor's office. One of the nurses was on the line, and she says, you're not going to believe this. Audrey said, what's that? She said, your test came back, the ones you took right before you left. You're 100% normal. Your heart condition is totally gone, according to these tests. And Audrey just thanked the lady, thanked the nurse, said, I knew it. I knew I had felt 100% better. And she thanked her, and she went her way. Well, finally, a few weeks later, Audrey went back to that doctor's office. And as she walked into the office, the doctor saw her. And he pulled her aside and he told her, he said, You know what, Audrey? Uh, I'm Jewish. And for the longest time, I've been Jewish. But I started attending a, a Christian church in Lake Arrowhead three weeks ago when you came into my office. And since then, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I believed in Him for salvation. And I wanted you to know that. And Audrey looked at him and said, was it because of, of this miracle? Was it because the, the fact that this, my heart condition was gone? And he said, well, not entirely. He said, believe it or not, I've, I've actually seen some radical medical situations in which things like this have occurred. He said, I was persuaded by that, but I'll tell you what. I was much more persuaded by the statement you made to me when you said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. The doctor said, I've never heard a patient say that to me. He said, that moved me so much that I was compelled to go and find out who this Jesus Christ was. And he ended up giving his life to Christ. Audrey's simple recognition that to die is gain helped this doctor find Jesus Christ. Friends, I say to you very clearly, take advantage of the opportunities that we have to impact the faith of another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the the beautiful opportunity we have, Lord, to live in this life. It is a gift, Father. Life is a gift. When we give birth to our babies, Lord, we recognize that this is a miracle, this thing called life. And Father, Paul makes it very clear. He says this life is a matter of life and death. He says if we're to continue to live on this earth, to live is Christ. is to be in relationship to and association with Christ. And to die is gain. Death is not to be feared for the believer in Jesus Christ, for we know that we have eternal security in Your Son. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this amazing week of VBS with these kids. So many of them learned about this matter of life and death, which is the person and message of Jesus Christ. 
And Father, I pray today that uh, the folks in the pews today, whether they be a believer or whether they do not know you yet, Father, I pray, Lord, that they would be impacted by the message here today. That the Christians in this room would learn and be motivated to impact the faith of another. And that the one who does not know Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that they would believe upon him for eternal life. It is of utmost importance, Lord, and we recognize that. We thank you for this special time together. We pray that you'd bless us as we go on our way. In Christ's name, amen. Justification is by faith. And if we were to read Philippians 1.19 as eternal salvation, then we would be saying that justification is by really striving through that prison sentence. And that's not what Paul's saying here. It could not be eternal salvation. I X that out rather quickly. I don't mean to do it imprudently, but I believe that there's just no good reason for us to understand this is Paul's eternal salvation. What about vindication at the Roman judgment seat? Well, the reason why I don't like this option either is because of this. There's two, two reasons. First is that Paul desires to vindicate the gospel. If you read verse 7 and you read verse 12 and you read all of the passages we've been looking at leading up to this, Paul is not defending himself. I think we've made that very clear. Paul is defending the gospel. And for him to desire vindication before Rome would seem to be antithetical. That would seem to be the opposite of his entire goal, which is to defend the gospel. If Paul had said that this will turn out for the gospel's deliverance, then yes, I would say it's option two. But he said, no, 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 no. This will turn out for my deliverance. For my deliverance. Because he used my there, I don't think that Paul could be speaking of his own vindication. Secondly, notice that Paul does not retaliate. He does not retaliate against fellow believing preachers who displayed emotions of envy and strife back in verses 15 to 17. Now I say this because, think about it. If you were desiring your innocence, imagine that you were trying to prove yourself innocent. And you were getting pounded by people who were bringing false charges against you. Who were acting mean toward you. What would you do if you were to be speaking of those people? You would immediately go on the offensive and say, no, they're wrong, and here's why they're wrong. But what does Paul do about the preachers in verses 15 to 17? He says, hey, you know what? They have poor motivations, but all I care about is the gospel. Paul is not, not concerned about his own personal vindication. He's not concerned about his own personal vindication. So we X out option two. Option three, here's where you're going to see some extra things on the screen. I like option three to an extent. I think there's some pros and there's some cons to this. In fact, a recent scholar uh, came out in favor of this option, uh, who I respect. But I think that there's, it's possible, but not altogether a, a, a cemented in stone for us to take option three. But let's look at it. First, I want to look at the pros. Paul says this about option three, whether or not this deliverance could be vindication before Jesus at the Bama seat judgment. Paul says, notice this, number one, for for pro, in favor of this option. When When Paul's expectation of deliverance is coupled with his knowledge that he will not be ashamed in the next verse, Remember the, verse, the word ashamed? Paul may be alluding to his own personal vindication at the Bama seat before Jesus. He may be. John, in 1 John 2.28, John speaks of saying, little children, you know, pay attention to what you're doing so that you will not be ashamed at Jesus' coming. Okay, this could be what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, I'll be delivered and I won't be ashamed. I'll be vindicated before Jesus. That's a possibility. That's a possibility. Second good reason to believe option three is this. There's good support. We're going to see this passage later in our series. There's good support that the word Paul uses for deliverance, that same word is used in Philippians 2.12, and it does concern the Bema seat judgment. He says, work out your salvation or your deliverance with fear and trembling. And I would say that in that case, it is very clear to me that Paul is speaking of the Bema seat or the future judgment of Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's using it the same way in verse 19. Okay? 
Something to think about. Now, here are the reasons against this option. Why is it not probable that Paul is speaking of a future Bema seat vindication before Jesus? The first problem with it is this. It is not customary. It is not customary for Paul to use the word shame in relation to the Bema. Instead, Paul prefers two words, approved and disapproved. In fact, I would submit to you that in all of the New Testament, Paul does not use the word shame to refer to the judgment seat of Christ. John does, but Paul doesn't. Paul says you're either approved before Jesus or you're disapproved. He doesn't use the word shame. And this, if, if in fact this is about the Bama seat in verse 19, this would be the only instance in which he does use the word shame. That would seem unlikely to me. Secondly, Paul never before... Paul never before or after Philippians 1.19 requests prayer or cites prayer, acknowledges prayer, for his future vindication before Jesus. Moreover, it seems unusual that the prayer of the Philippians would assist Paul in his future vindication. Does that make sense? In other words, how, how would it be that the prayers of the Philippian church will help Paul go before Jesus in the afterlife and be vindicated? It seems to me that there's a little bit of discrepancy there, uh, that we can't quite match up how that prayer would affect his vindication before Jesus. It's possible, it's conceivable, but it seems unlikely. And I hope that makes sense. Again, these, this, is very, this is a very difficult part in this sermon, and it's probably the most difficult section of, of Scripture that I have personally dealt with before you in, in my preaching. But it seems unlikely that Paul would be speaking of the Bama seat here based on these two reasons. So again, to look at our four options, I say option three is possible. I kind of leave the X off to the side. Um, it's a maybe, but maybe not. Um, now, I like option four a whole lot. And let's look at option four. Why is it that in verse 19, Paul is talking about being delivered from prison? Why is it that it could be deliverance from prison? Here's two very, very good reasons, actually three good reasons. The first is this. Paul says in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Look what he says five verses later. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and the joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Ladies and gentlemen, what is he saying six verses later? I'm coming home. I am coming home. I will not endure prison any longer. I am confident that I am coming home to you. Get ready. I am coming out of prison. He says it in verse 19. He repeats it in verse 25. Repeats the themes, which is not uncommon for Paul. I'm coming home. Look at the second reason why it's deliverance from prison. When Paul asks, excuse me, through your prayer, notice he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Well, when Paul asks for prayer, I'll tell you, he very likely, he very often asks for prayer for help for deliverance from either prison or evil men or in some kind of, of earthly deliverance from this obstacle. And look what he says in Philemon 22. Look what he says. And this is written at the same period of time he's writing Philippians. The same imprisonment. He's writing another letter and this is what he says. At the same time also, prepare for me a lodging or a room for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Same phraseology. He's using the same words. He's repeating himself to, to in this letter uh, to Philemon. He's repeating himself, saying, I know that through your prayers, your prayers, the help of your prayers, I will get out and I will come to you. And finally, what cements option four for, for, uh, for me, in my opinion, is Romans 15. And this isn't speaking of Roman imprisonment. This isn't speaking of imprisonment, but it is using similar language to refer to earthly deliverance. Look what he says in Romans 15. He says, but I know that. I know that. I know that. He keeps saying this. I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in what? Prayers. In prayers to God for me. That, uh, that what? I may be delivered. That I may be delivered. Different word for delivered, but the same synonymous concept here. From those in Judea who do not believe 
and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy, hey, there's a Philippian term there, by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Okay. Boy, that was... I know that. I, I, I hope I didn't lose you. Because I'll tell you, it's really fruitful to go through options 1, 2, 3, and 4 and figure out what is he saying here? What is he saying? In my humble opinion, we can be very confident that Paul is speaking of deliverance from prison. We can be somewhat confident that he could be speaking of future vindication before Jesus. I don't think it's likely. But I know that it is very likely that he is saying, I am getting out of prison. I am coming home. I am coming home. Okay. And uh, lastly, for you who like to go on rabbit trails, anybody like to go on rabbit trails like me, go ahead and turn later on, not now, because you will look at this and you won't listen to anything I have to say for the rest of the sermon. Go ahead and turn to Job 16.13. You know why? Because in Job 16.13, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words, for I know I will be, this will turn out for my deliverance, that exact phrase, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance, is exactly quoted in Job 16.13. Excuse me, 13.16. Thank you. Thank you. Job 13.16. I wrote that down wrong. Thank you, Pat. That is really significant because what is Job hoping to get? Earthly deliverance. Earthly deliverance. All right. Moving on. We're almost done. Here we go. We're rounding the corner. Now we get to verse 20. We get to verse 20 and Paul's going to say the second thing that he has joy about. Now let me recap. The first thing that he has joy about is that he's going to be delivered from prison through our prayers, through the supply of the Holy Spirit, that he expects this to happen and he's hoping for this to happen. And secondly, he knows that, that, boom, in nothing I shall be ashamed. In nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. When we look back at this, we see here that Paul is speaking of the word ashamed. And he's saying, I won't be ashamed. And let me, let me say what I believe he's, he's meaning here. Though the Jews, though the Jews who arrested Paul were sure that his ongoing Jewish and Roman imprisonment would bring shame to the gospel, though the message of Jesus, the message of salvation for a Jew and a Greek, would be considered by many Jews and Greeks alike to be nothing more than a fanciful religious idea, how, how is it possible that two people groups so diametrically opposed to each other could be united in Christ? Though the Christian movement was experiencing severe persecutions by now, persecutions that were increasing in severity and were increasing in number, through all of this, Paul wants to let the Philippians know loud and clear that he is not going to be ashamed. I will not be ashamed by testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Instead of shame, Paul says, I will continue with boldness. I will continue with boldness. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This should take us back to verse 18. Remember that when he says, when the... When, uh, whether in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ is preached, whether by life or by death, so long as Christ is preached, he's a good repeater. Paul says, where the preaching of the gospel, much like verse 18, where the preaching of the gospel takes precedence over the character of the preacher, here we see the magnification of Jesus Christ takes precedence over Paul's own life or death. Friends, preaching and living according to the message of Jesus Christ takes precedence over all things. And Paul was utterly convinced of this. All right, moving to application. Okay, so what? We've, we've wrangled through this. We've, we've tried to understand what Paul is saying. It's been a difficult portion of Scripture, I think, perhaps for all of us. But can we pull something out of this that's helpful? And I would say absolutely. There are three very helpful things I want you to consider. The first is this. 
I want you to commit to memory the interpretation of Philippians 1.19. I believe firmly that it is released from prison. And I think there's very good evidence for that. And I want you to commit that to memory because I'll tell you, again, when you commit to memory difficult passages of Scripture, when someone else comments on it, you can be there to guide them and to help them in understanding what the Word of God is saying. I had said last week, commit to memory the interpretation of verses 5 and 6. Now I'd like to see you commit to memory the interpretation of verse 19. Secondly, this is key. The progress, the progress and success of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not impeded by seemingly overwhelming obstacles. That's true for Coast Bible Church, I'll tell you right now. That is true for us today. Any obstacles that you and I may be facing, whether they be personally or corporately as a body here today, that does not affect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? It does not affect the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care how small we are or how big we are or whatever the case may be. It will not affect the way this church moves forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we will be faithful in proclaiming it as Paul was faithful even in prison. And thirdly, this is, I love this part because I want this to be front and center in our lives. Does the message of Jesus take preeminence in your life? Does the gospel take preeminence? Because Paul's saying it should. And I would say that the value you place on the gospel is largely reflected in how often you speak of it with others. If it takes preeminence, that means you're going to talk about it. Much like my wife takes value and priority in my life, and I like to talk about her. I didn't talk about her today. But I'm talking about her now. I love my wife. And, and so what do I do? I talk about my wife. And I brag about my wife. And I talk about our baby and blah, 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 blah. And I bore you to tears. But you know what? If the gospel, if it really is a priority to you, you will talk about it. You will talk about it. And I will talk about it. And we will talk about it. Consider that as you go about your day-to-day lives. Let's pray.